This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. I am so excited for today's guest because she is someone who I have worked to get on this podcast for years, actually. She's extraordinarily busy, but also extraordinarily gracious. That's just genuinely had so many things going on, so many conflicts that didn't allow us to speak until now. But speak, we finally did. Ruth Weiss is really an extraordinary academic, intellectual thinker. She's a scholar of Yiddish, taught for decades at McGill University and more recently at Harvard. She's currently associated with Tikva Fund, where I have some wonderful connections myself. And Ruth is just a delightful thinker from a fascinating personal background. And her being has sort of marinated in 20th and 21st century Jewish life, traversing multiple continents. So I'm really excited to finally have this wide-ranging conversation with Ruth Weiss. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spell fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Know with a letter U on Twitter. Subscribe or follow wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you may get your podcast episodes. Please rate and review and share this podcast with others who may appreciate it. And now to our conversation with scholar, academic, wonderful Jewish thinker, Ruth Weiss. We are here with Ruth Weiss, the great author, professor, scholar uh, of many, many decades, who is has really been prolific, someone I've had the great pleasure of reading and following for many years, and the opportunity to uh, try to interview for a couple years. We finally made it happen. So uh, it, it's really a, a great moment in my podcasting history over here. And uh, Professor, how are you? <laughs> well, I'm glad to be speaking with you. Wonderful, wonderful. We started trying to plan this during before, right before or during COVID and all of that stuff. And then there's been so, so much going on in life. But um, thank God we are here today. And I'm just so excited to learn a little bit about your story, you know, especially when you uh, when there's a, a scholar or a thinker or someone that you get to read, very seldom do you actually get to understand their own journey and their own backstory, you know, what kind of brought them to the topics they write about. You know, you kind of just meet them, you know, where they are in in terms of their surface level output and don't always get that backstory. So I'm re- really excited to learn a little bit more about your own history. And so let's let's start right there. I mean, tell us a little bit about where you are from. Uh, what your very early upbringing was like. Okay. Well, I should begin by saying that um, I did write a memoir (laughs) uh, that tries to explain um, pretty much what you're asking, uh, where I come from and how I got to have basically the ideas that I have, because it is more an intellectual memoir than a personal memoir. And that's what I'd like to emphasize here too, not so much the very private, but that which uh, really may interest you and, and whoever is listening. So I was born in Chernovitz, uh, which was then Romania, which is now Ukraine. 
And um, I was born into a very strange situation. Of course, every situation of a Jew in East Central Europe was strange. And the history of those who remained alive, like myself, um, is even stranger. So um, my parents were in Chernovitz because my father was a, an engineer. Uh, they both came from Poland. My, both my parents came from Poland, my mother from Vilna, my father from Bialystok, and my father had been in Vilna studying engineering. And when he became an engineer, he went into the rubber business, and he uh, was then transferred to Chernovitz, where he built a rubber factory, the first rubber factory in northern Romania. He was a, um, a penniless young man, engineer, when he went, but uh, his um, the people who were paying the shot, as it were, his uh, the owners of this factory basically gave him the go-ahead to build this place. So overnight, my parents, who were students and young people in Vilna, and then afterwards in the factory town, came to Chernovitz, which was a very cosmopolitan, um, marvelous city. Um, and it had a history relating to Yiddish. Because it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire earlier on, and it was a polyglot city where Yiddish was spoken and German was spoken and other languages were spoken, the first Yiddish international conference had been held in Chernovitz. So my parents came then from Poland to Chernovitz, and my father overnight became the owner of this Builder and owner of this rubber factory, and they were transported from, you know, Poland and kind of uh, a youth culture which was very lively, but also quite impoverished for many people, um, into this enormously, I mean, much wealthier uh, situation. Anyway, that's my parents, but I am so much the product of that moment in time that I think I have to start there because it's very improbable. The whole thing is improbable. So that is one thing. And then my parents had lost a little girl before I was born. When they came to Chernovitz with my older brother, they then had another child and she died of illness. They did not have drugs and the, you know, in that at that time. And she got sick and died very quickly. She was a wonderful little girl. And two and a half years later, I came into the world. For me, they hired a governess. And so I was raised by a Jewish but completely German-speaking governess in my parents' home, of course. And so my mother tongue is German. My parents spoke Yiddish. My brother was studying in a Romanian school. And that was my life with this wonderful governess who must have been marvelous because I feel like a very happy person, very lucky to have been brought up the way I was. And so that is me in 1940. In 1940, we left Chernovitz. We left within uh, a couple of hours' notice because the Russians had crossed the northern border, and my father was the owner of a factory 
not a good person to be in the, in their crosshairs. Yes. It was, it was probably instantly, instantly nationalized, I suppose. Exactly. It would have been, or it would have been, in any case, he would have been nationalized. He would have been deported or something would have happened. But my father had also been very close to communism, of course, in his youth. And he had been, this is the luckiest part of the story, he had become disenchanted because of events in his life. And those I try to describe in the memoir, that's all, his life is also very interesting. He was precocious in his uh, rejection of communism. He was precocious. And as I say, that's our great good fortune because that is what made him know that we had better leave immediately. And so we did. And we crossed Europe in the summer of 1940 from Chernovitz through Greece, through the Mediterranean to Lisbon. And from Lisbon, we got the last, I think it must have been the last passenger ship to uh, New York Harbor and then from there to Canada, where my father's brothers had gotten us entry visas. Now that, by the way, uh, all these things are, as you can imagine, close to miraculous. Providential, one might say. Providential, for sure. Uh, for which we've always felt great gratitude. And um, so we arrived in Montreal in October of 1940. That was already during the war. Prior to the United States entry and prior to Pearl Harbor. Exactly. Prior to her Pearl Harbor, that was why the ships were still crossing in, uh, the passenger ships were still crossing. This ship, by the way, I thought it had been sunk in its uh, return journey. It turns out that it had just simply been recommissioned now to serve military purposes. In any case, um, we then were in Canada, in Montreal. The two people who wrote the history of the Jews in Canada during that period of immigration, or let us say, who wrote about Canadian immigration policy in that period, called their book, None is Too Many because that was the Canadian policy regarding Jewish immigration to Canada the year we arrived. And in fact, there were only several hundred people who were allowed into, Jews who were allowed into Canada that year, if you can imagine, an underpopulated country like Canada. They probably let in more caribou than Jews. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perhaps. Uh, they were, um, that part of it is, is very sad. In my book, I try to um, recall important things about my upbringing. And one of them was conversations that I would have in later years with my father. At some point, I learned how awful Canadian policy had been to the Jews during the time that we came. And I then saw, I was working at that point for the Canadian Jewish Congress, and one of my colleagues there in the, at Congress had actually written part of the history of this period, too. And I found out that in the year that we came, how few Jews were actually allowed into the country. Now, my father was a great Canadian patriot. And in the way I was, you know, when I was at college, I used to say things critical of Canada. 
my father was always very uncomfortable with that. This was the country let us in. So when I discovered how few Jews were let into Canada at that time, I said to my father, look at that. You never allow me to criticize this country. But look at, look at what they did during the war. They only let in, at that point, I thought it was 600, but it's much fewer than that because many of those Jews whom they did let in were actually converts to Christianity. I said, look at how few they let in. And my father said to me, but we were four of them. In other words, our gratitude is ours. Our uh, responsibility as citizens is much greater than that of other people because of what we owe to this country. And our private experience in that sense has to trump what you've learned about history, my dear child. So this tells you something of the of that part of the story of, of how I was raised in terms of the dislocation, the disruption of things, how awful the war years were for my mother in particular and for my father. My mother lost her entire family, in, and it was a large family in Poland. Uh, my father lost his father, his sister, many relatives. Those were the war years. But what we were emphasizing was that there we were. And what you do is you have to be grateful for what you have and you have to build on what you have. Do you have a recollection of the actual journey, the set of tr transcontinental journey? This is interesting. In a way, I suppose I should regret the fact that I have absolutely no memory, period, of the la first five years of my life. Zero. I think that must have to do with the loss of language, because when we came to Canada and probably already on board ship, Germans served us very well during our passage through Europe. But once we, were, we had left Europe and we were coming to Montreal and into a very Jewish life in Montreal, you can imagine German was not the preferred language any longer. And of course, with my parents speaking Yiddish to me, um, I soon had to begin to develop the ability to speak Yiddish with them. And then I was sent to a Jewish day school, which had Yiddish as one of its languages. And in fact, in grade one, my mother told me the teacher had complained to her that I was corrupting the Yiddish of all the children <laughs> because of my German, uh, Germanic Yiddish. It's, it's funny. I noticed Yiddish in particular as a language, for some reason, is prone to a degree of snobbery that I don't know is, is present <laughs> in other languages. You know, people are like, oh, that's such a Polish. Oh, it's such a, such a, you know, a guttural Yiddish. You, you hear people that are really like, you know, purists and, you know, academic Yiddish and, and street Yiddish and Hasidic Yiddish. You know, it's funny. Well, it's funny that you say that. I mean, this uh, this is a wonderful subject. I, it, it isn't as much snobbery. It's that so many Jews are conscious of the linguistic aspects of Yiddish. There are not that many speakers of a language. For example, if, you, if you're a speaker of English, you're not usually a linguist <laughs> if you're not in linguistics. But in Yiddish, almost everybody is forced to be a linguist because there are so many 
the Yiddish is different from the different areas. And all these Yiddish speakers came together at various places. So one was very much aware of, oh my God, this person doesn't, you know, their accent is different. They're, they're, uh, and then when you move to another country, Jews were among the first to abandon Yiddish. So they began to speak English. And then the Anglicization of Yiddish, some wanted to speak, as you say, a more Yiddish Yiddish. The others couldn't wait to start using English words and showing how fast they were, you know, adapting to the new language and so on. So the degree to which Yiddish speaking Jews uh, have a linguistic interest, an interest in the language or an ear for the language itself is very unusual. Interesting. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. And you caught that. Yes, you, you caught that. But uh, but it isn't snobbery, I would say. <laughs> okay. I, I, I amend my, uh, my judgment. No, I'll tell you why it isn't snobbery. Because in fact, uh, one of the qualities of Yiddish is that it is um, a very receptive language. It does not tolerate actually what the French have, an academy. Yiddish loves to absorb new words and to make up its own words in relation to all the words that it's absorbing. And in fact, Mencken, the um, American... H.L. Mencken, yeah. Yes, H.L. Mencken, exactly, who wrote the American language, wrote that Yiddish is a language of easy... is an, a lady of easy virtue, meaning she doesn't care who comes into her bed. You know, <laughs> that it absorbs. That's just to say that it's not snobbery. It's more populist, really, than, any, than, than anything else. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, it does. It. What was your family's relationship to uh, Jewish tradition? It sound, I mean, it sounds like your father was more of a revolutionary, at least early on, um, you know, communist. And obviously, the interwar period was noted for, you know, the, the immense amount of uh, revolutionary activity and and the move away from tradition and the dislocation and, you know, the trauma and the opening of the ghetto walls and all of that for World War One and then cer certainly during the interwar period. What was your family's relationship to that? Or, and, and how far back would you go to access a more traditional aspect of the family line? It's a very good question always to ask, but a difficult one to answer. Um, my parents had both left what you would call tradition, although they both came from deeply traditional homes. So when they were in Vilna, in this youth culture, actually, as you describe it, my father had left Bialystok his home. So he was, you know, a student putting himself through college completely on his own, basically. My mother was orphaned by the time she was 20. So she was no longer living at home. So they were on their own, but it was a very lively youth culture, and they never felt terribly deprived of anything. But it was very, very Jewish. And because Poland had just been reconstituted as an independent country, and because that independence was accompanied by a strong nationalism uh, that became more anti-Jewish as the 20s and the 30s went on, the Jews, like my parents, turned back in on themselves. And they were I, strongly Yiddish, nationalistic, Zionist, very, very strongly, affirmatively Jewish. I think probably more so 
than had Poland gone on, you know, in a much more liberal form as it had been earlier. Uh, so in a sense, the more nationalistic the Poles became, the more Jewish these young Jews became. My mother was a great singer. And my brother, David uh, Roskies, who is um, also in Yiddish studies, he and I once did a, a program together, which actually you can find on YouTube <laughs> of our mother's songs. It's called Daughter of Vilna. We put together a, 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 a program of our mother's songs. And one of those songs is a song about the Jews who are trying to pass as Poles. And it makes fun of them that they don't have any interest in parrots and in Shalom Aleichem and the Yiddish writers, that all they want to do is to know about the Polish writers. And it mocks them for their assimilation. But the last stanza says, aha, but they can't get rid of their Jewish noses. <laughs> and when someone draws attention to their Jewish noses, we can recognize them. And then it says, Yiddish is a lovely language. Polish is an ugly thing. You see how this? So this tells you really about the culture of my parents, that Yiddish had become kind of the repository of their Jewishness. And Yiddish culture was huge. Writers, theater, singers, film. I mean, this was the apotheosis of a thousand years of development and 800 years at least of the development of the Yiddish language and Yiddish culture. And here it had come into fruition at this time when it was needed as a vehicle of national self-expression, you see. It's, it's, it's interesting that it, that became the sort of, as you said, the repository of the answer as opposed to religious uh, doctrine or religious, uh, you know, engagement. Yes, but you see why this can be so. Uh, ter why can this send you off in the wrong direction? So take now our lives in Canada. Right when we were in Canada, one of the things that happened, and I don't know how this happened between my parents. I only know what it felt like as a child growing up in that home. Pesach, you see was taken with ultimate seriousness. And, for example, we did not keep a kosher home. But when it came to Pesach, my mother changed all the dishes, redid the, you know, in the kitchen. Chomets, my father went around collecting the chomets. Chomets would no sooner be eaten in our house for those eight days of Pesach than in the most religious house that you can find. And we had two sedorum where people came, a lot of refugees who then began to come to Canada. People came. We read through the entire Haggadah and very often um, Shira Shirim afterwards. Wow. So you see, that was completely, you can't call that secular. No, not at all. And the same is true, I would say, we are Hanukkah. 
was much livelier than the Hanukkah of many Orthodox families that I know, because my parents had a whole repertoire of Yiddish songs that were Hanukkah songs. So Hanukkah, we would gather around the piano, we would sing, of course, we would have latkes. It was celebrated in great, great style. And incidentally, not so incidentally, I was sent to the Jewish People's School, it was called, the Yiddische Volksschule, the Jewish People's School in Montreal. And that was a largely Yiddish-speaking school where the culture was exactly the same as in my home. Powerfully nationalistic, very Zionist, Yiddish and Hebrew-speaking, right? And of course, we studied Chumash, but the boys were never asked to wear, to put on a kippah. And of course, many of the families there probably had various levels of kashrut or non-kashrut. No one ever talked about these things, you see. We never thought of ourselves as being secular. <laughs> you know, we just thought of ourselves as being Jewish and um, that this was the way people were fully Jewish. The demographic that really doesn't exist all that much anymore. It doesn't. It doesn't. And that's a difficult subject. My teacher, Max Weinreich, later my last Yiddish teacher uh, when I was studying at Columbia, this goes many years, was a great, great historian of the Yiddish language. His volumes on the history of the Yiddish language, by the way, I would recommend to everyone. They've been translated into English very well, and they are marvelous histories, not just of the Yiddish language, but if you want to know anything about the Jewish people during that period of uh, in Eastern Europe, I can't recommend anything higher than, than those books. Anyway, Max Weinreich thought that Yiddish was the repository of Judaism. And that's how he presents it in his book on the history of the Yiddish language. So that what does that mean? It means the life that we were living, the, the, the culture in which I was brought up. It was all in Yiddish. The jokes, the songs, the historical memory, of course, the biblical subjects, of course, Talmudic stories. It was all in there. But what he did not grasp and I guess no one could have, is that it doesn't work backwards. In other words, yes, because these people had come from a religious world, all of that was already in the Yiddish language. But just because you were speaking Yiddish, in no way recreated that entire Jewish world from which Yiddish came, you see. So once you started thinking that Yiddish was Judaism itself, boy, firstly, for those who assimilated, it didn't even last one generation, not even one generation. And then the worst part of it was that many of the people then made Yiddish into a kind of a, um, a substitute for Judaism. And because they needed a content for it, they went to leftism, and their leftism became Judaism. And so they went to leftist camps, and they sang communist songs, and they thought that was Judaism. And that, by the way, is a strain of Jewish life, in, uh, certainly in North America, no longer in Israel, but 
certainly in North America, that persists. Uh, it, you know, you, you can find many Jews who think that Judaism is leftism. Sure, that's the, the whole you know, tikkun olam kind of as a catchphrase for you know, a replacement for you know, theological engagement. Yeah, but I, it's interesting. I was going to ask you, um, it, it's funny you mentioned leftism because I was going to ask, you know, was this school that you went to, was it left-leaning or, or, or even more so? You talk about Zionism. I imagine that meant a socialist formulation of Zionism, um, as was the dominant strain in, is, you know, in Israel or Palestine, pre-Israel Palestine. And do you then trace much of the modern leftist disposition uh, of sort of contemporary Jewish life back to this group of, you know, this demographic of people that were deeply ensconced in Yiddish culture, the Yiddish sort of, you know, evaporated and, and much of the Jewish content evaporated along with it, but the social justice elements, uh, maybe that kernel persisted. Yes, well, it, it, it's right on, except that it, it, it's larger than that even because um, the Montreal in which I grew up had a whole range of Yiddish day, of, of Jewish, sorry, of Jewish day schools. So let me just describe the whole range. The communist Jewish day school on the extreme left, the socialist Jewish school, the Avram Raisin school, then the left-wing labor Zionist school, the Parrot School, and the right-wing labor Zionist school. That's where we went. Then you had a Talmud Torah, which was centrist Zionist, uh, mainstream Zionist, without the labor part. And then the extreme right at that point, before Chabad came, before, before the Haredi element before, came. Before Tosh. <laughs> right. The most right wing is that you had a, a school called the Adath Israel School, which was Mizrahi. That was the Mizrahi school. So you had the whole. Now our school was associated with Mapai, so it was supposed it was associated with the Histadrut. And one of my favorite parts of school for the seven years of elementary school, because elementary school was seven years then. My favorite part was when we got these Histadrut booklets of tickets, they were called, but they weren't tickets to anything. They were just pieces of paper. When we were supposed to sell these tickets for uh, amounts from 25 cents to a, a dollar and bring the money back to the school, and this was to go to the Histadrut. And um, so, you know, of course, I sold these tickets with great enthusiasm, and there were rivalries between the classes uh, as to who was going to raise the most money. But guess what? I always thought that this was for Israel. In other words, you see, there was no difference in my mind between the Histadrut and Israel. And I think that is true of my school. I think that is true of, it wasn't that they were lying to us or that they were deceptive in any way. They just felt that the Histadrut was the land of Israel. Right, that this was synonymous. So yes, labor Zionism was the beginnings of the statehood of Israel, and we were associated with that quite directly, right? And with the mainstream, with the main party of Israel. So the Jewish school immediately to the left of us, the Peretz school, was associated with Mapam, 
more socialist part of labor Zionism. And we were associated with the more Zionist part of labor Zionism, that is to say, with Ben-Gurion's uh, Mapai party. So early on, did you, did you have a sense that you'd be interested in, in Yiddish as a profession or in uh, literature, you know, writ large? What, what were kind of your early uh, stirrings from a professional standpoint? Well, lit- I always loved reading and I always loved literature. And uh, when I went to high school, it was my favorite subject. And then when I went to college, I, the only thing I could think of studying was, of course, literature. But it also comes from my mother, who uh, ran what one might call a literary salon for Yiddish writers and intellectuals in the Montreal Jewish community. So our house was full of books. But more than that, my mother subsidized, because my father was uh, working with his brothers in a factory and was relatively well off, she could use some of the money that she had at her disposal to support the publication of Yiddish books. And um, when and um, one of the systems that she worked with is a system that had been developed in um, Eastern Europe for the publication of Hebrew and Yiddish books. And that is a system that they called prenumeranten. That is, you prepaid for these books. So how would you get the money to publish a book? You would, my mother would sell these books in advance to her coterie of friends and, and acquaintances. You would buy, let's say, a book for $10. You would pay the $10 in advance. All that money would be used to publish the book. And then when the book was published, you would get a copy. But when the book was published, my mother would often make then a reception where the author would come and he would speak and then people would get their copies. And so these writers were always in our house and, um, you know, my, it was a one woman Barnes and Noble. <laughs> <laughs> you could say, <laughs> yes. Well, she would have liked to have it on that larger scale, let me say, but uh, the most she could do is what she did. And we were the great beneficiaries of it, of course, because it was wonderful to grow up in that atmosphere. Wow. And so uh, just uh, one of the cu- curious things about that is, you know, one of, I went to uh, college at the same time as Leonard Cohen. And, um, of course, Leonard Cohen became so famous that I once wrote a piece called My Life Without Leonard Cohen. Um, and, and I... I was, you know, the point is that if I'm ever going to be known for anything, it's going to be known for, you know, a footnote, you know, in the life of uh, Leonard Cohen. I imagine you've read Mati Friedman's uh, work on Leonard Cohen, a fellow fellow Canadian, by the way. Exactly. And also a fellow guest on this podcast at one point. (laughs) That's good. Mati's wonderful. Yes. Yes. Well, um, what happened when we were in college was that our teacher saying, I love this teacher very much. And he was also very influential in Leonard's life, uh, Louis Dudek. Um, he decided to put out the McGill poetry series. And the first poet that he was going to put out were the works of Leonard Cohn. And there was no money to put out this book. So I said, wait a minute, I know how to put out a book that you don't have money for. Prenumeranten. So uh, indeed, I sold 200 advanced copies of Leonard's book, first book, and um, other people. And so the book was published. And um, this is how 
my, what I absorbed at home was transferable in some way to the, um, I still have some of the little notes, uh, uh, receipts that, uh, that I have from people that I sold the book to. <laughs> and, and uh, um, you know, teachers, uh, professors at the university who bought it in advance and so forth. It was a lot of fun. That's wonderful. So when did you know that you wanted to make a career in sort of the, in, in letters, so to speak, and, and the, the combination of, of teaching and, and Yiddish and writing and all of those different yeah. pursuits? Well, I always knew that I wanted to write and be in literature. I thought that I would go into journalism, actually. And that was my first job was kind of related to journalism. But as part of the work that I was doing then, running a um, the press office of the Canadian Jewish Congress, one of the things I undertook to do was to organize a speaking tour in Canada for the Yiddish poet Avraham Sutzkever, whom I had met when my husband and I went to um, Israel. Now, Avram Sutzkever is a tremendously important figure in the history of the Jews of modern time, one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, certainly one of the greatest Jewish poets ever, a very impressive person. And so I organized this first trip of his to North America. It was extremely exciting. And um, we became very good friends. And at the end of his trip, he asked me, what are you going to do with your life? You're certainly not going to be working for the Canadian Jewish Congress forever. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I thought of going back to study English literature. And he said, why don't you specialize in Yiddish literature? And I laughed. I said, what would I do? Teach Sholem Aleichem? And um, I've often described that moment. It was awful. He was, of course, deeply insulted, and I was, I mean, the words would just came out of my mouth, but I was stunned at myself. I had studied Sholem Aleichem in elementary school, and I went on to Jewish afternoon school. I knew that there were great Yiddish writers, but because Yiddish had never figured in, uh, and nothing Jewish had ever figured in my four years of university, you see, I didn't have the imagination to think instinctively that, why not? But the minute those words came out of my mouth, that was it. So I said, well, but you know, there is no place to study Yiddish literature at an advanced level. And he said, oh, yes, Columbia University has a program. And so that's where I went. And um, only later did I discover that, of course, Sutzkever had been speaking to Max Weinreich. Oh. And Max Weinreich's son ran the program at Columbia University. And they were looking for students. They greased the wheels for you. They, were, they, they were, uh, <laughs> did grease the wheels. And as a matter of fact, I, I'm sort of the product of their imagination, not mine. <laughs> it sometimes, was you need, sometimes you need good uh, mentors, supporters, cheerleaders. And sometimes people have a vision for you that you don't even have for yourself. Absolutely. And, and they had it for themselves too, because they, of course, wanted to build a certain kind of thing that didn't exist. And so that's what I did. I went to Columbia and um, studied there for two years. And it's a long story. But anyway, that is how I went into uh, the idea. So you, you, and you subsequently taught 
in Canada, not not in America, right? Your most much of your career was in. Yes. Well, I was married, and I I went. Uh, I I I sort of commuted uh, to study at Columbia, and then I came back to Montreal because that's where my husband was, and then I started to raise a family. There was no way that I was going to leave Montreal. And so I had to do it in Montreal. And that made me go back to school to get a doctorate in another field because there was no field of Yiddish literature in Canada at the time. But once I finished my degree in English literature at McGill, I went to the department and I said, look, I want to teach Yiddish literature here. And that's how I basically started the Jewish studies program at McGill. Did you ever actually teach English literature? That's what your doctorate is in, or you went straight to Yiddish and stuck yes, only with matter that? matter of fact, the last years, you know how it is when you're a graduate student, very often at the end of your graduate student life, you begin to teach sections of English literature or sections of literature. And so, yes, for two years, I taught sections of English literature. It was the survey course in English literature, and I was teaching sections of engineers. I love that. It was wonderful. That was my first real teaching job at the university. But then I asked them, could I start teaching Yiddish literature instead? And that's how it got started. How is teaching English literature different from teaching Yiddish literature? Are there different kinds of analyses that that you would uh, engage or are there different unique challenges in one, you know, inherent in one language or one form versus the other? Well, the main difference, functionally speaking, is that, of course, English literature, you're teaching in English to people whose language is English and um, whose culture, surrounding culture, is English. So there's a lot more, you know, of the civic continuity in it. It is part of something that you don't have to explain. Uh, and, you know, you would say, in Hebrew, Muvan may love. Things are just simply understood. Self-evident. Self-evident. And it, it's, it's a much more natural progression. When you're teaching Yiddish literature, so in Montreal, that was one of the arguments I made for the introduction of Yiddish at McGill. There was still a community of young people who could take the language and take advanced courses in the original. So I was lucky enough in my first years teaching Yiddish literature, I actually could have as many as eight or nine, sometimes even 10 students in a class who were Yiddish speaking and fluent enough so that we could actually conduct the class in Yiddish, read in Yiddish. Then it, that was wonderful. But for the most part, teaching Yiddish literature, you understand, and Jewish literature is teaching in translation. So that's one of the main differences that you are teaching the language, the literature in translation to many people. But more than that, you are translating the culture to many students as well. Because when you start opening it up and you're opening up to the whole university and you know that it's interesting enough that you want to attract not just Jewish students and not just students who know this from home, but basically you do want to draw in a larger group of people who have no idea what you're talking about, then much of what you do has to be contextualized. You have to provide the background. You have to provide the rationale for teaching, all of this. Um, so yes, in teaching, there's a great difference between these two, uh, the, the, these two languages, these two literatures and cultures. 
Now, at some point, of course, you, you had this long career, I guess, at McGill, right? You were teaching at McGill. Was that your primary uh, yes, venue I, for teaching? Right. I taught at McGill for many years. Then um, we decided that we would move to Israel, my husband and I, in 1970. Um, because my husband was a lawyer and he had to um, retool in Israel. Sure. He would have to both learn the language and then do a stage and, and pass exams and so forth. I knew that for about two or three years, or maybe even much longer, I would have to be the chief uh, earner, which I had not been in Montreal. You know, he was a lawyer and I was, you know, could be a professor because he was the lawyer. But he, so I took two jobs in Israel when we went. So I got a tenure job at Tel Aviv University teaching Yiddish literature and a half-time or not a part-time, not half-time, part-time job at the Hebrew University teaching. So for, there was no, there was no high-speed train yet in 1970. <laughs> no, there wasn't, but that was easy enough to go back and forth. But um, yeah, so I was lucky enough to get to teach in, in Israel. But other than that, I taught mostly at McGill. That sounds like your, your uh, attempt at, I guess, at Aliyah. Was it was it meant to be sabbatical? Or was it meant to be a, a, a permanent? It was meant to be permanent. It turned to be a very short lived. Yeah. When you came back, you came back to Montreal. It sounds like yes, came back to Montreal, and uh, again, my luck held out because my dean took me back. Even he had not yet filled that position of Yiddish literature professor. Matter of fact, they had filled it. Really? So okay. Not teaching Yiddish literature, but someone who was teaching. Uh, fortunately, who was Yiddish, a, a great Yiddishist, but who was teaching history, East European Jewish history. So now we had an extra person in our department because they rehired me and he was teaching East European Jewish history. You know, we were, we were very, very lucky and, uh, we had a very good department. I think McGill still has a pretty good Jewish studies department. Despite the, uh, great degree of anti-Semitism that's been noted on that campus, or at least anti-Israel sentiment. McGill's kind of been a hotbed over the years, well before October 7th. Where is it not now? Yeah, right. it's very discouraging. Yeah. I think, I'm sure that it is not the majority of, and there, by the way, it's not faculty propelled as it is elsewhere. At McGill, it was much more student propelled, the anti-Israel element. Whereas at places like Columbia, and uh, even Harvard, the Middle East Institutes are the ones. Oh, yeah, that yeah. At, at Columbia, at Said, and yes, you've had. Yes, and AD, exactly. Now, at some point, you you migrated. I guess you call it south to uh, to Boston. Uh, speaking, we speak of anti-Semitism, and speaking of uh, notorious uh, campuses, and this current moment as we're recording here in January of twenty-four. What brought you there? You just were looking for a change, or looking for a a, a new adventure. I was not looking for anything. <laughs> I heard that there was a um, an opening that they were looking for a professor of Yiddish literature because Marty Peretz had um, established a chair in Yiddish literature and they put out a call for things. I did not apply, but um, at a certain point, I was asked to apply and invited to apply. And at that point, I said, you know, what do I have to do? And James Kugel, who was then running the uh, the search, 
told me that it was a breeze. All I had to do was to give a talk and come down. It would be so pleasant. And indeed, I came down, gave a talk. It was very, very pleasant, very attractive. So that was one thing. Secondly, at McGill, there was no real graduate program. Mm. Even though I had a handful, not even a handful of graduate, I knew that I would end my career and I would never have had any graduate students, maybe, you know, one or two important ones, by the way, but never a cadre. So that was another thing. When I, if I would come to Harvard, I would really be able to have a graduate student program. And then Quebec was beginning to turn the way it is now again, very inward looking and anti English. Yeah, separatist and separatist, yes. The separatist movement was growing. Made me very uncomfortable. My my husband, by the way, was totally fluently working in, in French all the time, had gone to the French law school. Um, he was totally at home in French Canadian culture and in, and we had friends and so forth. But it I just didn't like it. I didn't like a negative, you know, I did not like a punitive and a um, atmosphere uh, is very attractive to some people, you know, but it isn't attractive to me. I love freedom, maximal freedom. I'll take all the risks of freedom uh, as long as, you know, the possibilities are there as well. So there was that. And then our children were then grown and it was clear that not one of our three children was really going to probably settle in Montreal. They were all going to be probably in the States. So um, those were serious considerations. And so when I was actually offered the job, I thought it's now or never because I was in my fifties and uh, you know, that was, and it was a great opportunity. So yeah, my husband and I decided that we would, uh, that we would do it. We would uh, we would leave Montreal and we would go to move to Cambridge. And um, from a professional point of view, let me just say that teaching at Harvard, especially as I had foreseen it, with those resources, with that library, and with the students who could be maintained as graduate students, it was unbelievable. I was so lucky. We had such good students. They are such wonderful people, most of them. Now, not I have one exception, but but, but one. Exception. What's her name? Claudine Gay or not? Rules the rule. Wonderful, wonderful people, and they're teaching at various places. Uh, some of these at Columbia, at Emory, at Smith, the Hebrew University, before, and all over, and not just teaching literature, but some have gone into other fields, related fields, and so on. There's a a real camaraderie among them even still they are in touch with one another so you know when one speaks about harvard it breaks my heart in a way because one would like to just say how exceptional it was as an academic institution it still is for some people who can manage it but uh the atmosphere changed during the time that i was there and um and, and uh, the academic part of it, one could still protect, and it still remained excellent as to what would happen in the classroom between teacher and students. But um, the process that you're aware of, obviously, had begun about halfway through my uh, my tenure there. 
it's just, I'd, I want to actually shift a little bit into politics because you've, you've been widely, you know, you've written widely as well in, in that arena. And, you know, I, I guess publicly you're sort of associated with, I guess we call this sort of neoconservative movement, whether you uh, embrace or eschew that particular label, but it sounds like you, you may have had a, a shift, an ideological shift um, at some point over your life. You started out as this, you know, Histadrut labor uh, youth, so to speak, and you came from this idealistic utopian kind of uh, family, although your father was an industrialist, I guess, but you know, you had it certainly seems like you shifted um, as did many, you know, Norman Podhoretz and Irving Kristol, all these, you know, great thinkers. And I guess in the 60s, 70s, um, Vietnam era, was there a pronounced shift for you? And, and if so, what precipitated that? Well, you're quite right that everybody was liberal. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, one thought of oneself as being liberal and most Jews voted liberal, of course, in Canada, uh, the same way that most Jews associated themselves with the Democratic Party in the United States. It, it just went with the territory. Um, my husband, as a matter of fact, um, wrote um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau's marriage contract. Is that Justin Trudeau's father? Yes, when he, when he was prime minister. So that just tells you that how one close one was to the, to the Liberal Party. Um, but yes, one of the things um, that I am conscious of happening is the fact that when the solidarity movement started in Poland, which to me was just the greatest thing happening because I uh, detest communism. Um, I think it is extraordinarily bad. Um, and why is that? Because, because it robs people of personal agency? What, what, what about it is so nefarious to you? Well... That's a big question, I would sure. say, most of all, because it's so reductionist that, in fact, the whole of Marxism sees people as um, economic creatures primarily, it emphasizes that at the expense of everything else. It's a total misreading of human nature, of history. It's a total misrepresentation of what life is, as I know it is. It's tremendously at odds with Jewish civilization which is so rich and so multifarious and so much more, I mean, so much more accurate as I see it in terms of the realities of what a human person is and what the best kind of human society can be. So there is all of that. And uh, the anti-Jewish elements within communism is just part of it. Um, uh, you Give me a good challenge because I don't think I've ever sat down to actually define all the things about communism that I so detest. <laughs> but, uh, but its totalitarian application seems to me to be uh, inevitable, and particularly the way it in which it has an adversarial relation to life. It sees things in terms of, you know, warfare, the political war. Now, my father, for example, ran a factory, right? But the head of the labor union came to his funeral because there had never been a strike in my father's factory, you see, because what my father saw was that the best factory that you could run has the best relationship between owners and workers and between workers and supervisors and so on. So 
to my in my life, you know, of course, there are always going to be differences. If you have freedom, then you're going to have inequality. Right? Uh, but that is the truth of human nature. And uh, we are told, by the way, I have the 10th commandment. Let me put it this way. It's because of the 10th commandment that I so dislike communism. The 10th commandment was the one that gave me the largest degree of trouble. I could never understand it. The other commandments are so specific in terms of what you do. But what does it mean? Thou shalt not covet. How can the Torah tell us about our emotions? It never goes there. So how can it tell us? not to covet. Well, I came to the conclusion that thou shalt not covet means thou shalt not be a socialist. <laughs> well, it's interesting you know, that the Talmud itself discusses and it, talks about how really it means that a person shouldn't take actions that are covetous, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't request your friend's home, you know, when, when you know that they're living there and so forth. So it's interesting that yes, the Torah's legislation of emotion is a very, is, is in itself a very, very interesting topic, you know, to love God, to love one's neighbor. Very often those commandments are reinterpreted as action oriented commandments. Rightly so, rightly so. But you do see that that idea of covetousness was really very large in Marxism itself, in him and in and in the people you know that belong to the movement. This is really part of it. There shouldn't be quite anyway, whatever it is. Um, I don't know. How did we get to this point? So I was wondering about your own personal arc. Solidarity movement. So when the Polish solidarity movement started, I really saw Poland as the real battering ram that was going to destroy communism. And it did. I mean, I think that the John Paul, who became the Polish Pope, did a great deal. The Polish Catholicism did part of it, and the Polish liberal movement that did part of it. Well, Trudeau came out against solidarity because of the pro-Soviet part of him. You see, he could not see himself really going pro-Soviet to the degree of sponsoring or, or, or being in favor of solidarity. And when I saw the Canadian Liberal Party, sort of, or the head of the party, not even, you know, not denouncing solidarity exactly, but coming out against it rather than wholeheartedly embracing it and encouraging it. I thought, oh my God, I'm on the wrong side of this. And so that was very large. And you, you said it. I was a reader of commentary. I read all these great people and I realized that my thinking was very much aligned with theirs. I will tell you honestly, in some ways, commentary was not my magazine because I never thought they were strong enough on Israel. I never thought they were strong enough about the Jewish people. So it's not that I was their cheerleader 100%, but on the political side of it, that turn to precisely neoconservatism, I, I just ate it up because it's so paralleled my own movement, the movement of my own thinking. Uh, and that was really very fortunate that you had thinkers like Irving Kristol and Norman Podhoritz primarily the editor. Just had his 94th birthday, apparently, <laughs> according to the commentary uh, podcast. <laughs> well, you know, he's so great. And then with Midge Dechter, his wife, and, right. and all the writers, one after the other, they articulated these positions that struck me as being sound, sane. They wrote 
honestly. They faced problems. I liked their way of thinking. I, you know, I liked everything about it. And so um, I felt myself to be kind of uh, part of that from a distance. Were you able to build relationships, actual real life relationships with Absolutely. some of these people? Yes. Uh, Neil Cosadoy, one of the editors of Commentary, became my editor. I eventually started to write for Commentary. He became one of my closest friends and uh, has remained that. And, uh, you know, that became my world. If you if you had to define in just a couple of sentences, what are, what are sort of the habits of mind or the dispositions that you found so attractive there and that really, I guess, in, in that sense, autobiographically sort of animate your own uh, way of thinking? Well, stylistically, I think of it as them being street fighters. In other words, you know, I've been kind of ruined a little bit by the academy. Uh, when you get a PhD, you have to go through a certain kind of training, which is very different from critical thinking. What you have to do, <laughs> yes, I, sorry to say, you have to build up, you have to pass, like, say, let's say, the exams. You have to be in apprenticeship for so long, and you have to prove all the things that you have read. Now, you can read them critically, it is true, but what you have to do before you make an argument, you have to say, well, I have done this, I have done this, I have done this, and here's the definition of this, and here's the definition of this, and here's the definition of this. And going through all those steps and satisfying all the teachers and satisfying all the requirements, I mean, what it does in many people's cases and what it threatened to do to me as well is to make me that kind of person who I have to prove my credentials all the time. And I have to really, uh, you know, uh, show this, spend hours, you know, uh, setting the groundwork for everything. You can never get to the ideas themselves. Well, most of these people really didn't get PhDs. And if they did, they didn't take the PhD very seriously. You know, they, they took their thinking very seriously. So when I say like street fighters, it seemed to me the image I had in my mind is that these people take an idea and they wrestle it to the ground. I mean, they take it very seriously because they're, this is an antagonist here. You know, you can't, this is a real thing. So they don't dismiss it, you see, and they don't exaggerate it, but they treat it right. But you see what I mean? They, they, they just sort of tackle it. I love that about them. The clarity of their thinking and their writing seemed to me to come from something like that. So that's that I loved very much. And the other thing is really respect. Um, when I started to review for commentary, for example, the first thing I, was, I learned is that in order to write about a book, if you're praising it, that's easy enough to do, or at least easier, but you still have to set it up in its own terms. And especially if you're being critical of it, the first thing you have to do is you have to describe it in its own terms. You know, you have to, if you're taking it seriously enough to review it, you have to be respectful enough to tell us what its argument is, what it stands for, what it's trying to do, right? And then, only then, can you really, really uh, savage it if you, if you, if you're, you can do it, and, but then you should do it carefully, cleverly, and accurately. So there's a respectfulness there that uh, the conservative uh, impulse, really. Exactly the conservative impulse, exactly, and and also the third thing 
that I also learned from reading American, the, the Federalist Papers, which is uh, was a great surprise to me. Um, I guess one of the most moving documents that I began to read. I'm not a student of the Federalist Papers in any way, but maybe I, translate them into Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, probably. Uh, worst case thinking. That's the part of it that most appeals to me. Anti-utopian, really. Anti-utopian, yes. And I really think that's a Jewish obligation. And one, one might argue that that was a, a failure. If we, if we fast forward to contemporary events, one of the great failures of imagination that occasioned October 7th you know, was the lack of that uh, worst case thinking and, and this sort of being lulled into a, a rosier best case scenario. Well, it, it, it goes, yes, you're quite right. And I, uh, you're following a very good line of thought, I think, if I may say so. But uh, for me, it came much earlier. Um, I, I would say that the low point of my life as a Jew were the Oslo Accords. Mm. I did not think that Israel would ever be able to survive the Oslo Accords. And that was right after you had come to Harvard, I believe. Exactly, very much so. Yes. And it was um, very much at the same time. And I thought that was the end of the country. Not then and there. Why? Because no one has ever armed their enemy with the expectation of gaining security. No one in the history of human affairs. So they took the world's worst terrorist, Yasser Arafat, who was in Tunis at the time, and they decided that they would put him in charge of Palestinian something entity in the West Bank because of their temporary convenience, because these idiots, <laughs> you forgive me, thought that they could remake him or something because yeah, he rehabilitate him, yeah. Abracadabra Kadu, you know, they would believe that he would become there, but that he would protect them. Yes, that he would protect them instead of using that armor and so on to assess. I, I, I mean, it was just beyond belief that people could actually imagine such a thing, persuade themselves of such a thing. That's number one. And secondly, by that time, I had started to think deeply politically, um, if I may. I told you that Passover was the most important holiday. Well, I trace it back to this, that uh, we took Pesach very seriously. We took the Haggadah very seriously. And one of the things that was always a, sh a stopper of every Seder, of course, was Bechol Dor Vador, Omdim Aleinu Lechalosein. Yes. And in every generation. And then Vachodesh Borachu Yatsileinu Miyodon, right? Well, most of the people at the table, you see, uh, concentrated on the part HaKadosh Baruch because everybody knew that HaKadosh Baruch had not saved us from their hands, and there were always some strong atheists at the table, or, you know, I took very seriously the first part. I wanted to understand, why do they in every generation? And that's why I wrote Jews in Power, basically to answer that question. And I did for myself. And I don't think it's true that in every generation they come at us. I think that it's not true that everybody hates the Jews. I think that it depends on them. Who are they? And it's true that all evil, I mean, there are many, many evil empires, many evil systems, 
that have to choose the Jews because of that convenience that the Jews provide for them. But it's not everybody. And so part of it has to do with the way the Jews function politically. Now, this is not to blame the Jews for the way they function, because the way they function politically is, I think, the best way of functioning politically. But if your premise is that everyone else is acting the same way, then you bring upon yourself a great destruction. Jews must never, ever mistake their behavior or the behavior of others or project their wish. Projection can be fatal. It can be fatal because it's, it, it's self-projection. They project the worst of themselves onto the Jews, but we make the opposite mistake of projecting the best of ourselves onto them. And the combination of these two things is fatal, invariably fatal. And that is something, by the way, that I learned from Yiddish literature. Because, of course, who was destroyed in Europe? It is the Yiddish civilization that was destroyed. And it kind of priced itself out of the market. It became so good, so absorbed with its own goodness. I mean, to read a work like Chaim Grada's My Mother's Sabbaths, not some of the yeshiva, some of the work, but the, the work like My Mother's Sabbaths, and you see this woman, his mother, what a tzaddikis, the level of morality that this woman had achieved, and this was villain morality, you know, for many people. Of course, there were thieves and everything else, but still, the community collectively had this. So, yes, you can rise to the highest level of morality, but, you know, if you purify yourself at a degree and Hamas is your neighbor and you don't understand what they stand for, I mean, you see the tragedy that you wreak upon yourself. So Jews have a really difficult, 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 unenviable. I would love to live in a world where everyone was like me. I would love to. But I dare not for one moment deceive myself into believing that. And so I think that one has to cultivate the ability to think in terms of worst case scenario. Yeah, I want to connect the dot because before you said, when, when talking about literary criticism and, and, and so forth, you mentioned that you know one of the pillars of the commentary type of approach is one of respect, which means taking people seriously and understanding them on their own terms within their own worldview. Well, you know, that's exactly the the antithesis of what projection does. You know, if you don't understand radical Islam. Qua radical Islam, you will never really understand that, yes, they actually do want to kill us. It's not euphemistic. It's not some sort of, you know, flair, uh, you know, or linguistic flair. It is it is literal and from the river to the sea. And, and that's why this rhetoric is so, so dangerous. But that comes from not really respecting them in, in some ironic sense enough to take them seriously and to understand them within their own context. Absolutely. I mean, you said it. So I think that that's, I couldn't, you know, exactly right. Professor, tell just to bring us current, where are you today? What are you, what are you doing now? How are you filling your days and, and what uh, adventures uh, still await you? Well, I think the, the greatest professional piece of good luck that I have had 
has been the fact that um, Tikva uh, was created during the last part of my being at Harvard. And even while I was at Harvard, I began to teach a seminar here and there for Tikva. And then when I moved to New York, I could become associated with Tikva, you know, as my place of residence, as it were. So I've been teaching for Tikva and writing in connection with them. And it has been my home base. And um, it has grown phenomenally. And it is a wonderful, wonderful contribution to American life and to Jewish life. And it keeps growing. I mean, now I, I, I hardly know from day to day what else is going on there. But for myself, uh, it has been really uh, uh, just, uh, you know, everything that one could wish. Fabulous. Yes, I've, I've actually participated myself in a Tikva seminar series for uh, Orthodox uh, community members a couple of years ago. I did that and I actually have a, a close association with some of their some of the uh, faculty there. So I can, can certainly concur with that. And it's, it's wonderful that even after leaving Harvard, one might say that you've found a, a more uh, hospitable uh, environment, at least in today's current climate for uh, independent thought and for uh, critical thinking and for Jewish consciousness. And it's, it's really wonderful to, to read you there and elsewhere. Uh, Professor, is there anywhere that people can, is it sort of like a central repository that people can read your work or find your work? What's the best way for people to access or interact with your output? Well, how kind of you to put it that way. Well, Menachem Butler, who is an astonishing individual. Harvard. <laughs> has, has, oh, yes. He has just put up uh, on Academy, I guess, Academia, he's put up my entire bibliography. Really, it's uh, unbelievable. The entire bibliography, you know, that's a listing of everything that I've written, even back going back to college days. Uh, yes, that's quite remarkable. Bless him. Um, I couldn't have done it, I assure you. And um, well, other than that, I would just say the books that I've written, I stand by um, and uh, hope to keep writing. Um, in the Wall Street Journal, and obviously for Mosaic, which is the Tikva publication, and for commentary and uh, the national affairs, and uh, and also I uh, will be speaking at Beit Avichai, <laughs> which is also a home away from home for me when I'm in Israel. Lots of outlets. Fabulous! It's wonderful to see that you're remaining uh, so spry and active both uh, physically and uh, intellectually, even even in your quote-unquote retirement, uh, at least from academia. And it's uh, it's really been such a pleasure and an honor to, to speak with you, a real scholar and a real, not only a thinker, but what I found in this in this interview is that you are, a, uh, of course, a brilliant thinker, but someone with a great Jewish heart. And perhaps that's most important of all. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.